Welcome to the Reformand Initiative podcast. My name is Clay Kennard. I'm joined by my co-host, Reed Carr and Leonardo DiChirico. And this podcast is coming to you from the city of Rome. Uh, it's a few days before Christmas. It's a beautiful day in Rome this morning. And we're here to continue a conversation that we began last week. Last week on episode nine of our podcast, we introduced this topic, why understanding Vatican II is, is essential in understanding present-day Roman Catholicism. And so we kind of left the door open at the end of that conversation, and today we're going to pick up again uh, with episode 10. This is our 10th episode. Praise God for that. Exciting. Uh, Yes, very exciting. And uh, the title of our podcast this morning is Wrestling with the Contradictions of Vatican II. And that's exactly what we told our listeners last week we were going to do. And so, Reed, why don't you explain to us a little bit more what what we're going to do specifically today as we wrestle with uh, Vatican II and various documents there. Yeah, thanks, Clay. So this morning, let's get straight to it uh, because we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. Um, as Clay said, we ended last week's episode on Vatican II by saying that uh, when one sits down to take a close look at the documents and theology of the council, uh, you inevitably encounter what seem to be clear con- contradictions with past councils and the theology and doctrine uh, that those councils produced. And although we didn't get into the theology of Vatican II uh, and its contradictions last week, that is what we are going to attempt to do today. So in doing so, we'll see that there is a lot to wrestle and grapple with in order to have a clear understanding of present-day Roman Catholicism. And a clear understanding may be wishful thinking, we'll see, but we will certainly uh, do our best. And in doing so, we'll provide some examples of the contradictions we encounter and we will also make an attempt at answering questions such as, you know, so how do we as evangelicals address and interpret such contradictions? What is to be believed? How do we know what is true and where the church stands on certain issues? And how do we best interact with our Catholic friends and family members in light of the contradictions we encounter? Also, this is um, why we said last week that understanding Vatican II is essential to understanding present-day Roman Catholicism. Uh, as Leo pointed out, Vatican II is the latest council. And that means that it is the lens through which all past councils ought to be interpreted. And it represents the latest in the development of Roman Catholic thought and theology. And we also said that Vatican II is arguably the most important of all councils. And that's because when we are faced with theology in Vatican II that seems to clearly contradict the theology of past councils, it is Vatican II that holds the interpretive key and that best represents current Roman Catholic uh, thought on any given topic. So when the inclusiveness of Vatican II, for example, seems to clearly contradict the exclusiveness of the Council of Trent, it is Vatican II that currently holds precedence in the thinking of the Catholic Church. And this is certainly the case with Pope Francis, uh, who, as Clay mentioned last week, is the first pope to fully embody the theological implications of Vatican II. And this is where, really, the frustration and confusion begins to emerge, especially for someone who really wants to understand Roman Catholic theology and what it believes on key issues. It's important to remember, as we noted last week in Episode 9, that councils never nullify or make void past councils. They simply build on them and develop their thought. Vatican II, for example, was an, an, an aggiornamento, or an updating of the church in this theology in light of uh, modern times. It was not, however, a changing of its theology. That is, it is not to be understood as a change that cancels cancels out or nullifies previous councils in the dogma and doctrine produced by them. No, the change is more in the form of development. Just as a a child changes and develops over time while always being uh, still the same person. 
Uh, the problem, though, is when we find ourselves looking at documents that don't seem to be the grown-up version of a child, but a different person uh, altogether. But, but we'll get more into that. Towards the end of uh, last week's episode, I read a quote from John Stott concerning Vatican II, and I'll read it again now uh, as it will be helpful for framing our discussion. So re- reflecting on uh, Vatican II in 1973, Stott had this to say of, of the council. The Roman monolith, which for centuries has appeared inviolable, has at last cracked open. Conservatives and progressives, traditionalists and radicals, are engaged in a fierce power struggle. And because the issues were still open during Vatican II, the council endorsed opinions which oppose, contradict, and exclude each other. To many observers, the whole church seems to be in unprecedented unprecedented disarray. So when Scott, uh, when Stott Uh, makes the observation that the Roman monolith, which for centuries has appeared inviolable, has at last cracked open with conservatives and progressives and traditionalists and radicals engaging in a fierce power struggle, what is happening is a struggle against the Roman and the Catholic aspects of the church that uh, Leo spoke of and explained last week. And we mentioned that the Council of Trent, which prior to Vatican II was certainly the most significant of the councils, was as Roman as the church can get, with all of its anathemas and stipulations for excommunication. Vatican II, on the other hand, with zero anathemas, was as Catholic as the church gets. So this produced a great power struggle as many wanted the church to be more Roman and others more Catholic. Uh, And this struggle struggle resulted, as Stott points out, in the church endorsing opinions that oppose, contradict, and exclude each other. In fact, David Wells, the author of Revolution in Rome, for which John Stott wrote the foreword that we just quoted, says something similar in his book. He said, One of the most frustrating difficulties which I have encountered, so that he encountered in in reading Vatican II documents less than 10 years after its uh, closing, concerns the matter of sources. Who speaks for Rome today? Who, then, should I read to build up a composite picture of what Catholics now believe? So this was, an, again, an evangelical looking at Vatican II in 1973. Now, almost, 70, uh, sorry, almost 50 years later, and it seems that Wells' question is in many senses still applicable, applicable, no? But at the same time, we're looking at Vatican II in 2019, and at this point it seems a bit clear that the precedence of Vatican II and the current thought, theology, and practice of present-day Roman Catholics. So is that fair to say, guys, or anything to correct or add to that before we move on? Yeah, yeah, it's very fair what you have just said. And it's not only any, an observation coming from an evangelical standpoint, but also Catholics discuss uh, and they are confused in thinking, who is speaking for Rome today? Is it the traditional documents or is it the you know present-day... Uh, trends and then they there there's a lot of confusion even in the Catholic people and the many critical voices that arise even in the Catholic world world against uh, say Pope Francis or other trends in the Catholic Church show that this is not only an evangelical issue this is a issue even within the Catholic Church so now let's get into some actual examples of the seeming contradictions that we have uh, been alluding to and that make it so difficult and frustrating at times to understand present-day Roman Catholic theology. And I think there are two distinctions to make here. The first being the contradiction of Vatican II with past councils. All right, the Council of Trent, uh, for example, provides a great example of to juxtapose Vatican II with. We've already said that Trent was as Roman as you get 
and the Vatican II is as Catholic as you get. And, so, and then the second distinction are the contradictions of Vatican II with itself. As Stott pointed out, due to this power struggle that went on during Vatican II, with neither side being willing to give ground, the Council in the end endorsed opinions that opposed and even contradicted each other. But let's go back uh, to the first distinction and juxtapose Vatican II with the Council of Trent for just a moment. If you Google, for example, the anathemas of Trent, you get a long list of de declarations that, if not agreed to, result in being cursed uh, cursed by the church and excommunicated by the church. Uh, there are anathemas concerning all sorts of doctrinal topics, such as baptism, justification, the sacraments, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, marriage, the mass, and the list goes on. Uh, and certainly with Trent, you had uh, the church very clearly and very forcefully exercising and imposing its Roman nature. This was necessary, of course, due to the upheaval the Protestant Reformation had caused. So the church had to respond with vengeance and with clarity. Believe this, or you are cursed and excommunicated from the church, period. Uh, very, very clear theological and doctrinal lines were created with this council. In fact, Trent was very much representative of the famous expression coined by Cyprian of Carthage, a bishop of the third century who wrote, Extra Ecclesium Nulla Salus, or outside the church, there is no, no salvation. Mm -hmm. So with Trent and with all councils prior to Vatican II, for that matter, this expression held true. You are either in the church, that is, you belong to the church, or you are outside the church and outside of its graces, and you did not belong and were excommunicated. You were either saved by and through the church and affirmed its clearly stated doctrine, or you were cursed and condemned and excommunicated. In fact, here are just a couple examples. We'll just give two of the anathemas of Trent, which indeed exemplify what we have just said. Um, so these two come from the section of anathemas on justification, uh, and then we'll look at how that seems to contradict present-day Roman Catholic theology as presented in Vatican II. So the Council of Trent has 33 anathemas on the doctrine of justification alone. So here are anathemas 1 and 9 on justification. The first one reads this. It says, If anyone says that man is justified by God, before God by his own works without the grace of God through Christ, let him be anathema. So the Catholic Church has never said that justification comes through the works of man alone. That would be a misrepresentation of Catholic theology. Certainly the grace of God is one ingredient of the Catholic uh, recipe of the gospel, but it's not the only ingredient and is not sufficient as an ingredient. And this fact is made clear in the ninth anathema on justification, which reads, If anyone says that by faith alone the impious are justified, let him be anathema. So here we see the second ingredient of the Catholic gospel, which also highlights uh, the nature-grace interdependence of the Catholic theological system. No, man has his part to play in justification, which is exemplified, just to give one example, uh, by the necessity of observing the sacraments. But again, the main point being made here is that prior to Vatican II, the message of the Catholic Church was clear. Believe this and affirm this, or anathema and excommunication awaits you. But is that, um, again, just before we move on, anything to add or clarify? Yeah, that covered all Protestants of that century and even present-day Protestants because we still believe that we are justified by faith alone. 
and not by works. Actually, this is something that Paul says and the Bible endorses. So it is part of the biblical teaching. So these anathemas, these curses, are, were directed to uh, Protestant believers and uh, based on a doctrinal point that is still uh, valid uh, today. Uh, well, yeah, I would add in the 1999 uh, Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, which is this document that was put together um, with uh, the World Lutheran Federation, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, the Roman Catholic Church, um, made some people believe that perhaps Trent had been overturned. And when one of the cardinals who was uh, in in charge of that, putting that document together and collaborating in that effort, was specifically asked if uh, doctrine had been overturned. He said it could not be. And in fact, if that document would have under uh, overturned the declarations and the curses that we find in, uh, in Trent's documents, they would not have been able to sign that document and come to an agreement. So uh, just to throw that out there, there are, I have Roman Catholic friends that think that those curses of Trent don't apply. We've got this document that says we're in agreement on justification. Not true. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, is in an evangelical seminary, and his professor had said that the anathemas of Trent had been, much of them have been overturned, uh, specifically the ones on justification. I think most people would quote the JDDJ document that you yeah. referenced, but that's just not simply not true. No. And this cardinal affirmed that, saying we can't, we're not overturning or, or overruling past councils. The, the, the anathemas are still valid. Yeah, the, the, the point is that they are lifted for those who endorse uh, GDDJ. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is, those who are ecumenically reconsidering, uh, rethinking their doctrine of justification as making it uh, accommodated with... Uh, the, uh, the teaching of the Council of Trent. So basically, they say those who are now the Protestants who are open to embrace both mm -hmm. the a kind of doctrine of justification by faith and endorsing the Catholic insistence on the uh, infused grace and the necessity of the sacraments and good works for them, those curses do not apply. But for those of us who are still uh, very much in line with the classic Protestant biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, those anathemas are still in place. And if you want to know more, just very quickly, um, go to one of our websites, isthereformationover.com, read our statement, and if you're in agreement with it, sign it. But also under the resource section of our website, reformandinitiative.org, uh, there's a great resource there. I believe it's even a video resource with Michael Reeves at the uh, European Leadership Forum speaking specifically about the JDDJ. So if you want to know more, you can go check it out there. All right, so <clears throat> let's leave Trent now and fast forward 400 years to Vatican II. All right, so no longer do we see anathemas of this nature that we just uh, spoke of or clear doctrinal and theological lines that have been drawn to indicate, indicate clearly who belongs to the church and who doesn't. As we said last week, Vatican II is much more welcoming, much more embracing, and much less ex exclusive in its language. So to demonstrate this more embracing and, and inclusive language, language and to demonstrate also the seemingly clear contradictions with past councils, such as the Council of Trent, uh, we're going to read an extremely important chapter 
from the Vatican II documents. So whatever you, our listener, might be doing right now as you listen to this episode, stop for a moment and and listen carefully. Unless you're driving, don't stop driving. But Because the Vatican II documents are made up, of course, of hundreds if not thousands of chapters, but the one we're about to read is certainly one of the most well-known of all the chapters and is arguably the most controversial of the Vatican II documents. In fact, entire books have been written on this paragraph alone and its theological implications. So Clay is going to read for us um, chapter 16 of Lumen Gentium, uh, or the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church. It's most commonly known simply as Lumen Gentium 16. So as we read this, keep in mind the anathemas and clarity of Trent, and note the complete change in tone and attitude of Vatican II. And it's not super long, so we'll read through it once and then go back and walk through some key elements of the document and try to make sense of what it is saying and try to make sense of the contradictions we encounter. And one one other thing to add here is as we read Lumen Gentium 16, just two chapters before in Lumen Gentium 14, uh, the church affirms this. It says, The sacred council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the Catholic faithful, faithful and basing itself upon, upon sacred scripture sacred scripture and tradition, excuse me, it teaches that the church now sojourning on earth as an exile is necessary for salvation. So it affirms this idea that the church is necessary for salvation. It doesn't cancel out what it says in the Council of Trent and all prior councils, but we'll see a, a very clear de- developing, development of, of that thought. So Clay, would you mind reading Lumen Gentium 16 for us and for our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, And I think for those that don't believe in the total depravity of man, we could refer to this for them as the the sweet 16, uh, which if you're an American, you'll you'll get that silly pun. So I'm getting rolled eyes in here. (laughs) All right. Lumen Gentium 16. Finally, those who have not yet received the gospel are related in various ways to the people of God. In the first place, we must recall the people to whom the testament and the promises were given and from whom Christ was born according to the flesh. On account of their fathers, this people remains most dear to God, for God does not repent of the gifts he makes nor of the calls he issues. But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place, among these there are the Muslims, who, professing to hold the faith of Abraham, Along with us adore the one and merciful God, who on the last day will judge mankind. Nor is God far distant from those who in shadows and images seek the unknown God, for it is He who gives to all men life and breath and all things, and as Savior wills that all men be saved. Those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, yet sincerely seek God and moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived in an explicit knowledge of God, and with his grace strive to live a good life. Whatever good or truth is found amongst them is looked upon by the church as a preparation for the gospel. She knows that it is given by him who enlightens all men, so that they may finally have life. But often men, deceived by the evil one, have become vain in their reasonings and have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, serving the creature rather than the creator. 
or some there are who, living and dying in this world without God, are exposed to final despair. Wherefore, to promote the glory of God and procure the salvation of all these, and mindful of the command of the Lord, preach the gospel to every creature. The church fosters the missions with care and attention. All right, thanks, Clay. So going back just to the first line that says this, it says, Finally, those who have not yet received the gospel are related in various ways to the people of God. So here's the question that Lumen Gentium 16 is responding to. So what about those, the church is just asking this question, right? What about those who have not yet received the gospel? How are they related to the people of God? Well, they are related in various ways, says Lumen Gentium 16. And then it begins, In the first place, we must recall the people to whom the testament and the promises were given from whom Christ was born according to the flesh. So who, Leo, who's being referred to here? This is just the, the people of Israel, the Old Testament, making reference to the people of God? Yes, yes, that's right. Those who have received the, uh, the covenant, uh, the Old Testament covenant, yeah. And as, as we read through the rest of this document, again, we're juxtaposing Vatican II with the Council of Trent and its anathemas. It's very clear. Believe this or you're excommunicated. Now, one thing that uh, Leo has done in the past, which is a, is a very helpful way to understand this document, is, is where you look at Trent and past councils as either being in the church or outside of the church, which means, of course, if you're in the church, you are receiving the graces, God's graces to you through the church because that is the role that the church plays in, in distributing and um, it is where the graces are held, and then they distribute it to people. So you're either receiving those or you're not at all. In Vatican II, we see a different idea. It's, it's not a matter of whether you're receiving them or not. It's more a question of just how much grace are you receiving. And if you think of this idea mentally as, as concentric circles with a dot in the middle, which represents the Catholic Church, and which would represent the fullness of grace. If you're there, that's where you need to be. You need to be in the church receiving the fullness of God's grace. But maybe you're not there. Maybe you're in the next concentric circle out. Maybe you're an evangelical. Well, you're not receiving the fullness of grace, but you're a, uh, what is the language they use? A separated a sa- brother. A separated brother. Um, and so you're receiving some, but it would be better if you, were, if you moved in mm. and into the church to where you would see the fullness of grace, but you are still receiving it, and you move out. You, oh. you, you te- keep taking... What we're going to do as we read through this document is, is you see it as these concentric circles that start in the beginning, uh, as we just said, with um, uh, the people to whom the testament and the promises were given. Okay, We're talking about the people of God, the, mm-hmm. middle, of the, the middle of the circle, the re- receiving the fullness of grace. Now we're going to move out and continue to move out to where everyone is receiving grace to some extent, just not fully. Yeah. Again, juxtaposed with the past councils of you're either receiving it or you're not, period. That's right. You, you could, you're either in the church or out. You're either in fellowship or excommunicated or outside of God's grace. Whereas here you have shades of participation. And so um, everybody is in one way or another revolving around the same grace. And... Uh, and that is a, a, a significant, a radical change from not only Trent, but also Vatican I. 
And uh, many Catholics are also confused about this because they hear uh, the, uh, the Pope or other Catholic authorities talking about very all-inclusive, inclu using inclusive language, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're all saved, we're children of God, and yet Trent says a very different thing. And so uh, for us, this is a, a contradiction. And uh, uh, for the Catholic Church, this is a kind of development, but at the expense of clarity, at the expense of the gospel, basically, because it, uh, uh, it moves away from uh, biblical boundaries and uh, endorses this uh, uh, kind of relativistic and, and, and pluralistic uh, outlook that is capable of embracing the whole of humanity ultimately at, di at different levels, you know, not, not, not saying that we're all uh, in the same, on the same boat, but ultimately we revolve around the same grace and therefore uh, that uh, past Clear-cut distinction is is overcome, right? While while maintaining, as it says in Lumen Gentium fourteen and and past councils, that the church is necessary for salvation, yeah. but then expanding what that what that means to yeah. where it contradicts itself in the end. Yeah, that's right. That's that's one of the uh, changes that have taken place. You know, from uh, for instance, us evangelicals being referred to as excommunicated or heretics to being referred as separated mm -hmm. brethren uh, without clearly saying what what happened in between uh, is a matter of uh, contradiction and uh, now we, we, we and, and and also as far as the Muslims are non-christian believers are concerned they were referred as being pagans even people and now they're referred as being brothers and sisters around this revolving around the same center of God's grace what what did it, what what happened that made this change so uh, radical if not a significant development and uh, away from the traditional doctrine embracing this uh, all inclusive kind of catholic approach to the point of blurring the lines and making and this is you know where the, the Vatican II understanding of the church being a sacrament comes in mm -hmm. they would explain that this is the result of uh, shifting you know the the main metaphor or picture of the church from being a society of people clearly belonging to it either belonging or not belonging to it to a metaphor of uh, the, the church being a sacrament, a sign of an, or an instrument of God's grace. And that is more blurred, more, more fluid right. type of uh, picture to, uh, to, to, to refer to the church. But the key here, and, and this is something, uh, Reed, you've written a paper on before, is, is the conscience, right? So it's, it's not, yeah. if I've been baptized and I'm a member of the church, we see here in this chapter that the key is those who, who basically listen to their conscience even if they don't have explicit knowledge of, of Christ, even if they've never heard the gospel, this, this chapter in this document is saying that, hey, if they listen to their conscience, uh, there's grace for them as well. They're, they're within those circles. They're not yeah. out of reach of God's grace. Yeah, the contradiction is that at the end, they, they make reference to the fact that they have to preach the gospel, but they have undermined that necessity by saying that 
in different ways, you know, different people are related to the people of God and to God's grace. So this is a clear example of the both-end type of approach. It, it, both-end, both saying that we're all revolving around the same grace and saying that the preaching of the gospel is necessary for salvation. But these are the two, how the two intersect is beyond uh, biblical clarity. It's moving on into uh, theological blur, blurred lines, uh, Roman Catholic lines, no, no longer uh, biblical lines. Yeah, and just, just to reference those biblical lines, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 11, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call him. So salvation is not only for specific people, but it's, it's available to all nations. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It didn't say everyone who listens to their conscience. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, which they say at the end they need to yeah. preach the gospel? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Um, and then verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. So, um, Which that, ver that verse is quoted and cited by the catechism on the Catholic, of the Catholic Church. Yeah. So they, they're, there's this juxtaposition of both this and that. But to, to make sense of what we're saying here and kind of walk through it again um, logically, so we, we started this document saying that it is referring, uh, that is Lumen Gentium 16, that um, it's answering the question of how the church relates to people who have not received the gospel. And it starts off with the people of God, again, with that, the center of the concentric circle. And then it begins to move out. And, and Leo made reference to this before. It says, but the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place amongst these, there are the Muslims, who, professing to hold the faith of Abraham, along with us adore the one and merciful God who on the last day will judge mankind. Now, tell me that that is not a clear contradiction with the anathemas of Trent. Let's say there's anathemas on 35 anathemas on justification. Now, how can that be squared with a faith that rejects not only justification in Christ, but even the death of Jesus Christ? Yeah, the deity. That... that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's a complete contradiction. Or curses on those that would deny the Trinitarian God, right, which Muslims do. So, so the God we worship, this document says is the same, but theologically speaking, we're talking about two different gods here. So how do we make sense of this? Well, Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic mindset is both hand. So it's a constant, ongoing tension between saying this and that affirming the gospel and contradicting the gospel, affirming elements of the gospel and affirming at the same time elements contrary to it. So the system, the problem goes back to the system. It goes back to the fact that the system is broken, the system is uh, flawed, the system is uh, wrong. It contains you know, elements of the gospel, but the overall matrix is flawed because it also contains uh, core commitments that run contrary to the gospel. And so the end result is always a contradiction, is always a paradox, is always a, an ongoing, uh, untenable 
biblically untenable tension. In fact, we'll obviously come right back to Lumen Gentium 16, but the next chapter, 17, starts off saying this, As the Son was sent by the Father, so he too sent the apostles, saying, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, that does not square with... Um, Muslims, it just yes. doesn't. You can't. We don't have the same gospel at all to, to share. So, what mission are we going on? What and wh- whose name are we baptizing? So, moving on. That's so we already we're we're moving outside the the main circle. We've created concentric circles with evangelicals, although they don't they're not mentioned there. But Muslims. But we continue to go even further. It says, nor is God far distance from those who in shadows and images. Seek, to, seek the unknown God, for it is He who gives all men life and breath and all things. So who are, we, who are we referencing here, or who is the church referencing when it talks about people who in shadows and images seek the unknown God? Well, people of other religions uh, that have a religious sense of the life, uh, they have a view of the uh, divine, and they, 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 uh, they build uh, pictures or images about the about the god or the gods or the divine it talks about generally generally speaking it talks about people who have a religious uh, life but going back to Romans 10 they're not professing faith in him belief no. in him and Jesus Christ but yet they're included here but then the the concentric circles and, and those who are um, capable of receiving and receiving God's grace is not even in there. So it continues, those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them through the dictates of their conscience. And this is the reference that Clay made before to, to the important role that the conscience plays in modern day um, Roman Catholic theology. I, I, I remember very well uh, reading an article in which a, a very well-known Italian journalist um, was interviewing in a, interviewing Pope Francis, but through an exchange of letters. It wasn't a, in a personal interview, but it, they were exchanging letters. This is in 2013, after shortly after Pope Francis had been uh, elected pope, and he asked he asked Pope Francis, uh, you know, what was the what is God's relation to those who don't believe in him, basically? And, uh, and Pope Francis begins his response by saying, well, God's mercy knows no bounds, which is a true statement. But he used that to set up saying the key is obedience to one's conscience. He said you, you obey your conscience, and this leads you to God. He said a disobedience to conscience is, is equivalent to sin, basically. So obey, obeying, as they say here in, in Lumen Gentium 16, the dictates of your conscience. So your conscience is, is capable of, of leading you to salvation. Yeah. So this also responds to that age-old question, though, of what about the person who's never heard the gospel? Would that be accurate to say? Yeah. So this person, through true, trying to do his or her best, um, sincerely seeking God and moved by His grace, uh, desiring to do His will in some in some mysterious way, uh, will arrive at that point. And then it continues saying, "Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived in an explicit knowledge of God 
and with his grace strive to lead a good life. Whatever good or truth is found amongst them is looked upon by the church as a preparation for the gospel. So, I, I, for example, something that comes to mind is a reference we made a couple episodes ago to this father, um, mm. the atheist father who had baptized his children. Emanuele asked the Pope, where is my dad? And so Pope Francis very clearly referenced the goodness yeah. of that man as 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 acceptable to salvation. Yeah. He all, uh, when, when he also, uh, Pope Francis talks about that it's all of grace, all of grace. And maybe this is the point where we can uh, address, uh, you know, a message that we received. Uh, yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Uh, we did receive a message on social media, on Twitter, someone asking uh, what our thoughts would be um, in, in regards to a tweet that Pope Francis just made. He said, in these days before Christmas, we praise the Lord for gratuitousness, for the gratuitousness of salvation, for the gratuitousness of life, and for everything he gives us for free. Everything is great. Amelie Santa Marta. Everything is grace. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense in the light of what we have just said. Uh, this all-embracing, all-encompassing, uh, grace of God, reaching out to different people, different ways, different distances, at different levels, different circles. Uh, but this is not the gospel. Uh, this is a way of in, of picturing or uh, a, an inclusive uh, way of thinking and appreciating the grace of God. But the grace of God is always uh, matched with the judgment of God, the righteousness of God. As Luther has reminded the church, uh, the gospel makes sense only if there is a law uh, to which the gospel responds. If there, the gospel on its own, we, there is no salvation if there is no judgment. There is no redemption if there is no uh, righteousness of God and sin and repentance. And so saying that all is grace is, yeah, on the surface is right, but ultimately is wrong. It is, a, it, it is a pagan view of grace, not a biblical view of grace. All is grace, yes, but provided that we, that grace means that we are sinful and we are lost in our sins and the law of God condemns us, then we can embrace, by God's grace, His grace. But saying that this is, it's all grace, it, it is in line with Lumen Gentium 16. Everybody is, everybody are already uh, circling around God's grace. And therefore, it is a universalistic view of grace, not a biblical one. Yeah, it's very much an inclusive religion. Uh, and this document makes that clear, which goes back to my ridiculous pun at the beginning that this is a sweet 16. Because if, I, if I'm reading, for example, uh, through the book of Romans, and I see that Paul says, no one is good, no, not one, no one does what is right in God's eyes. I read chapter 10 that I have to believe and confess in, in Christ in order to uh, receive salvation. That that would disturb me if I think mankind are ultimately good and I'm a good person. But if I come here and I read chapter 16 of this document, it's a pretty sweet deal because there's room for me. Uh, and, um, and what we see is something that does stand contrary to Scripture. And as you have said, read contrary to previous councils. Mm. Just to summarize, uh, our point here is that yeah, that you're going to encounter contradictions. And you may hear one thing from someone that sounds more evangelical, sounds more in line with Scripture, but right next to that is going to be something like Lumen Gentium 16, which is practically universalistic in its, in its uh, salvific scope. Um, 
So they'll say one thing that's contradicted by this. So it's a both and frustration. It's a both and tension that has to be navigated. They, they say both this and they say both that, even though that contradicts <laughs> the previous statement. So you need to be aware of these things. That's why it's important to understand Vatican II. We said that you, it's essential to understanding modern-day, present-day Roman Catholicism, and that's why. So be aware of these types of uh, paragraphs. It's buried deep in a uh, just tons of documents, but it's there. And it's the reason that entire books have been written on it. So be aware of them. That helps you to be more informed when you have conversations with your Catholic friends. If they say, well, no, I don't believe that. Well, that's what it means. What it means to be Catholic is, is to endorse th- these, types of, these types of things, which clearly contradict Scripture and the Gospel. We cannot say as believers and people who trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation that Muslims are our brothers. We just can't do it. There's no room for that in, in a, a gospel discussion. So I think that's we could say so much more, but we'll have to close here because we're running over time. Yeah, but just to, just to conclude, it requires uh, an alertness and a discernment and, and that the evangelicals who are theologically equipped uh, understand how to approach and engage with Roman Catholicism. So read, if someone wanted to be better equipped theologically speaking, where where would be a good place to do that? <laughs> Yeah, uh, Union School of Theology actually would be a great place. Um, Clay made reference to Michael Reeves before. That's the president of Union School of Theology, and they have an amazing faculty. They're doing uh, amazing things, trying to equip and train um, pastors to to lead the local church and people to serve uh, the local church. So check out what resources they have at um, ust.ac.uk. Even if you don't live in the U.K., even if you're not in Europe, uh, they may have some opportunities for you to so go check them out. So if I wanted a bachelor's, would they have an opportunity for me? Yes. A master's? A PhD? Cut that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to cut that because I also want to mention, uh, if you want to be better equipped to understand Roman Catholic theology and practice, join us here in the city of Rome in the heart of Roman Catholicism uh, from June 15th through the 19th in 2020. Last week we mentioned that for our annual Rome Scholars and Leaders Network, we had 22 participants signed up. We now have 30, so we're praising God for that. So don't miss your opportunity to check that out, reformandainitiative.org slash RSLN. And if you're interested, apply. We would love to uh, spend time with you and, and help you engage and understand Roman Catholicism better. As always, follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Reformanda Rome, and on Facebook, at Reformanda Initiative. And our website, www.reformandainitiative.org, has a form. If you have questions, please send them to us. We'd be happy to respond. So it's Christmas. Merry uh, Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, Happy New Year. Yeah, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, We're really encouraged by the response to the podcast, so be sure to share it with all of your friends, with your family members. We're praying for you, specifically those of you who are going to be spending Christmas with your Roman Catholic relatives. So we'll be back sometime after the new year. That's right. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.